to Opening Dharma Access, a podcast where we hear stories from BIPOC teachers about their Dharma experiences and practice and how these inform the ways they are sharing the Dharma today. I am Karma Yeshe Churjan, your host for this episode. Joining me today is Sister Peace. Sister Peace spent five years in government work before realizing that something was missing. Feeling spiritually bereft, she began practicing at the Washington Mindfulness Community, where she encountered the teachings of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. Compelled by his teachings, she relocated in 2006 to the Plum Village Monastery in France to deepen her mindfulness practice, and where she was ordained a Buddhist nun in 2008, receiving the Dharma Lamp transmission in 2017. Welcome, Sister Peace. It's such a joy to have you here. And we are so very fortunate, Sister Peace, to welcome you as one of our new co-hosts for the second season of Opening Dharma Access. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I am so grateful for being here. My heart is is beating fullness, if, if I can share such a thing. And I consider it such a gift to be in the company of the other host for this amazing opportunity for Dharma to access all, especially our BIPOC family. Mm, definitely. Sister Peace, would you share with our listeners how you identify racially, ethnically, or any other categories of social location that are relevant to you mm. right now? Well, I identify as African-American. Uh, when I was growing up, it has certainly changed from Negro to Black to African-American. And I suppose I embrace all of those because those are identities that I've been associated with. My pronouns are she, her. And if there was a pronoun to bring into the fore the presence of my ancestors, it would be that too. Oh, that's wonderful. We all, as BIPOC Dharma practitioners, have so many different experiences growing up in the Dharma. Can you speak a little bit about what would have been helpful to you as a Dharma practitioner? Mm. Um, I would say I feel like I, I sort of came along at a time when BIPOC was being embraced, first of all, by those of us who are BIPOC. And I feel that it was a time when there was a feeling of fear coming from others, particularly the fear of somehow missing out. And I, along with others, not only in, in my community, but I know in other, other communities, had to be strong enough to be able to embrace, yes, there is a lot of healing and sharing that needs to happen. And there's a lot of teaching that can happen. But we can't do both at the same time. What we can do is we can huddle together to share experiences that are so nuanced that if you did not catch them, you'd either miss them or you'd have to ask what just happened. And somehow having to, you know, leave that space of nuance to explain or teach, it feels like to many of us what we've always had to do. And 
and I'm, I'm not judging that as a, you know, right or wrong, good or bad, but that we need all the energy that we can mm-hmm. muster to hold ourselves individually and collectively to heal. And that as we do that, we'll be in a much better place to be able to share our suffering and articulate it and perhaps help point the way to others what they may need to do to learn or do the same for themselves and their relative groups. Mm. Well, it's so lovely to notice those differences. Yes, yes, to really, really notice them. And and even that said, there's still an expectation. And to be as kind as we can when we're sharing. Yes, I know. And not now. And not now. And as I said, helping to point the way of of how the other groups who might feel, you know, left out, wanting to know, wanting to help, wanting to learn all admirable things, but not at a time when we are doing for ourselves. And I would say, uh, understanding the need for affinity practice. And one of the hardest things, and I've heard not only in my community, but in other communities, is there are retreats for business people, for artists, for healthcare workers, for politicians, medical, every manner. But the moment you say, well, our group of BIPOC folk want to have this. And one of the first things that I hear articulated, oddly enough, is where there's not enough of you. Oh, goodness. Imagine how something like that lands. There's not enough. And this is from people who don't know. They they are ignorant for whatever reason, not judging it, but what we learn is mere recognition. Just, okay, what is it? As, yes, I see compared to the other groups, does this group of four or five deserve have its own, which would pull a facilitator and all this versus one that would have 20. And I say, yes, I remember there was a, there was a a retreat happening at a monastery and there are people who identify all sorts of things, BIPOC as well as LGBTQ, right? And it was about five or six people. And I was just grateful that I was in the room when, you know, a decision was, well, well, we'll just put them with someone else because we don't have enough. I said, no, you won't. You won't give them to me. You're going to give them to me. I'm going to lead that group. I, I am going to gather that group. And wow, what a powerful group, of course, everyone is. And and I shared I shared that with the group, and they were so grateful. I was so grateful. I felt I felt blessed. And then, you know, later I could go back and say, here's why. <laughs> here's why. It's it's important. If you're going to say to people you want to meet their need and then say, oh, well, sorry, there's not enough signed up with no, with a group with the, with the, with the scars and sensitivity of our, our BIPOC groups. Well, that is just, as you said, so full-hearted. I just can't resist asking you if you're willing to share a little bit about that healing process that can happen in affinity groups or in smaller spaces where we don't have to explain our experiences so much and why that's so 
important to, to occur in those safe spaces. Mm. Right. It's a safe space and it's a sacred space. And I want to say it's an all-knowing space. We're there. Our ancestors are there. Our ancestors are helping us and communicating with us. And guess what? Our ancestors are communicating with each other. And that's the feeling that, that, that I have. And that, again, not having to explain, just getting, you know, a nod of approval or whatever happens to, to, you know, come out of us like, yeah, right, amen, or whatever, whatever it happens to be. And knowing that this space is safe, knowing that there, there's not going to be judgment, knowing that, again, not having to explain. And one of the most important is being able to be in a space with people that, um, who look like you. And instead of having people in the room who remind us of the people outside of that room, we sometimes have to wear a mask. We feel like we have to wear a mask. So we are unmasked when we are together. And that is so very, very healing. Yeah. And I know that, 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 there have been those who I have personally had to invite outside of that group, you know, and of course they're not happy, but they just want to learn. They just want to know what can they do to help. You can, but not here, not now. There are other groups. And inevitably people would come back at the end of the retreat and say, you know, I was really hurt. And I think for the first time I really felt what it felt like to be, you know, excluded as it were and in their way own way they did you know as well as understanding then ah okay and that's a beautiful thing too it you know it doesn't come with pleasure so much maybe it's painful in the beginning but at the same time as we all know um, if we can look deeply and or at least hold momentarily what appears to be a suffering there is a lesson there to be deposited in our hearts. I'd love to tap your experience in your mind for the kinds of things that might be helpful for communities like you just spoke of who want to be supportive of BIPOC practitioners and teachers now and just don't know how to go about it. Certainly having spaces for affinity groups so that that is an access point for people is one of those things. Is there more you could say about that or about other suggestions you would make for communities who really care? Mm. You know, a couple of years ago now, it was during the middle of the pandemic, I actually did give a talk called Uncomfortable Spaces. And in my community, uh, there are not many well, I was going to say not many monastics of color, which is completely wrong because it's mostly Vietnamese and they are of color. But by that, I'm speaking more in terms of African-American, Black or Hispanic, the, the Blacks and the Browns, say, of so-called Western world. So I was asked if I, if I could give a talk to help some of our 
elder and older practitioners who have been with Plum Village and Thich Nhat Hanh since the beginning, maybe find some space to understand the need for space. I remember when I was giving the talk and, and the things that I prepared to share in the talk were, well, what can I look and take out of my own life that could maybe help understand? And I guess there were two things that were important. One was, you know, living in a, in a community of, you know, in a Vietnamese community, you know, where language you didn't understand. I could chant, you know, I could read, and I knew what it meant, but I, you know, if I had to listen to a long conversation or even Dharma talk, I really didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. I couldn't, I hadn't, I hadn't the, the, the skill to do so. You know, and as monastics, we would always, you know, there's recitation, you practice the precepts, and we would listen to, to teachers share about the precepts. So it either could be the elders in my community, and often it was elders in the Vietnamese Buddhist community, especially from Vietnam, where most of them came from. And there were teachers who could give excellent teachings in the precepts. Sometimes the venerable nuns would come, and boy, I love those venerable nuns because they just had so much power <laughs> for lots of reasons. And, you know, myself and the others, you know, few, very few others who didn't understand Vietnamese needed a translator. And those translators were wonderful. They would often listen to it beforehand, you know, spend two or three hours with it so that we could listen to a recording of the translation while it was happening. But that was rare. Usually it was in real time. And as a nun there, I began to see, you know, I can get this learning elsewhere or at another time. I felt I wanted my translators, my sisters or brothers, to get the teaching live from these folks in this moment. It, it just hits different. And I made that suggestion. Can you listen to that? And then I'll go over here and listen to something else or come back later. And my sense is it's a lot of times this is a great strategy to have when as much as you want to be a part of something and know about it and hear about it, it might require more work on the people who are listening and practicing than not. So can we give that space for them and it'll come to us as it's supposed to somewhere else at some other time? And another thing that was um, very present for the group at that time was Black Lives Matter. And a lot of people just couldn't get their head around. What do you mean Black Lives Matter? What about my life or this life of life? And so, again, reaching back into my own history, which, of course, is part of a collective history of, of, of many others. You know, the first thing I shared was, you know, it's not that Black Lives Matter more is Black Lives Matter too. Too. It's an invisible too. Black Lives Matter too. That's what's being said. And how many of you all were around and remember 
the sanitation strike in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was sitting in Memphis, where I live at the time. And King was assassinated here. And what did the placard say of the sanitation men? He was there to help get justice. What did it say? It said, I am a man. That was yesterday's Black Lives Matter. And here we are still. And here we are still. Mm -hmm. More understand and hopefully more will make space to understand. But being able to do what I call that arcing, you know, this is that and that is this. Hmm. What would you say your experience was from the start of encountering Dharma all the way until you joined the Plum Village community? What was that like for you? Were these awarenesses a part of your journey the whole time? Was it something that opened up for you? How did that work for you? I think that it certainly was something that opened up for me. I cannot say that when I necessarily joined the Dharma, that there was a more whole awareness, I should say, because I started when I was young in my 20s and just much out of college back in the late 70s and 80s. And I was already on the spiritual path. You know, when I was a little girl, I had the good fortune of going to Catholic school, parochial school, where at that time where I lived, that was the better education, supposedly. In any event, I learned from the nuns, by the way, whoever thought I'd end up one. But anyway, the nuns would say that God is everywhere. And on Sunday morning, my mother would, you know, wrestle us to get up to go to church. And I said, oh, but mom, if God is everywhere, why do I have to go to church? (laughs) 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 And she said, don't you get smart with me. You get up out of that bed. And so the questions for me started, little did I know, except with hindsight, they were actually evolving then. Well, I, I get that God's not everywhere. But then I learned that for, for many of us, you know, we need brick and mortar to get in touch with that, whatever that God, Buddha, Jesus, Allah, whatever, whatever that is, it's helpful to have that enclosure. So I, I, I gradually, you know, sort of understood that. And then I continued on my spiritual path and I met with other groups. And in those groups, there were other black people, but it was still always mostly predominantly white. And that's just the way I rode, rolling along more with an awareness of, ah, there must be others and what can we do? And then us as others begin to reach out to the other others and uh, finding ways to, to practice together. And then there have been beautiful organizations and entities that have been started just for that, holding space just for that, and doing everything that I can to make sure that spaces like that can be held open for the tradition that I come from. 
You've spoken a little bit about the predominantly white communities you first encountered and also the Asian communities you encountered. What differences would you describe you encountered in those two spaces, if any? Mm. You spoke a little bit about, obviously, the language obstacle. Mm. Is there anything else that you noticed or comes to mind? Yes, you know, um, I noticed that in in my lineage community, which is mostly, you know, Vietnamese in the in the monasteries, it was a cloistered majority, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. And so we were able, thanks to a whole host of things, to be able to have, you know, my, my Vietnamese brothers and sisters be the majority of the community. And as such, things would happen for the majority. And, you know, two things that could come up from that. One is, you know, having to remind there's more than just the majority here. And can we bring in these other elements and this other awareness to which most of the time it was very open to, just didn't know, you know, as well as, on the other hand, recognizing the subtlety of we're in America. This monastery is in America and it's mostly Vietnamese and it's a cloistered majority. But is there the recognition or is there the same recognition that we would have coming from, say, a Western society of being, quote unquote, minority, different or other? And does that even come into play or how much would it come into play in a cloistered majority and how how do we how can those things be navigated how can those things be navigated you know having that recognition and in my own experience trying to look very deeply at the traumas that my vietnamese siblings inherited going as far back as china Mongolians, Koreans, Japanese, French mm. colonization. And then the cherry on top is an American war in Vietnam. Refugees, both people, all, all that we see still in today's headlines. And knowing that that's an awful lot of stuff, even when you're the majority, that's a lot of stuff to heal. A lot of stuff to heal. And how do we help each other do that? Or do we give space for it? There's a lot of questions and perhaps no questions. But sometimes just seeing that, that to me, just being able to get myself around that helped to inform me of why things did or didn't happen or why people said or didn't say something. So it sounds like you're looking deeply at so-called other experience uh, really helped uh, both your experience and your connection. Yes. Yes. And again, the long arc, not just looking as far back as their grandparents say the war, but what about way before then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and 
wow, you know, can we practice? Can I remember to remember to practice that in every situation? What would you say is the edge of your teaching nowadays as a BIPOC teacher, especially with respect to BIPOC students in particular? Uh, I would say that it's still, um, well, let me say that our BIPOC students now are very much aware of the healing that can happen in, in these spaces. And holding, I would say, allowing the space for us to be together, you know, and Ah, trying to find words to put around it. Um, There's still a lot of holding Mm. to do that happens. Learning, holding each other, you know, to mirror the holding we can do for ourselves. Mm. Too, I know that one of your focuses is this common theme with Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s teachings about building beloved community. Mm. And I wonder if you would speak to that in the context of building beloved community that is inclusive and diverse. Mm. Mm. Yes. Uh, you know, there was just a bit of a piece uh, I wrote for the Raft newsletter, our, our Technon Foundation. And it was actually Dr. King that helped point me the way to Technon because I heard him talk about this monk. <laughs> and, well, I was a, a little girl at that time, but later, you know, reading about you know, Dr. King's references to Thai. And I looked into that and I thought, wow. And I then I looked into Thai's own method of what he's now known for engaged Buddhism. And it aligned so much with, uh, I think a lot of people who come to the Dharma, it's, it's almost not new. It's like you, because you recognize the tenets, you recognize the precepts in yourself. I'm already doing that, or at least I'm trying. (laughs) And so that was, and it was simple. And only years later did I realize how masterful it was for teachers like Ty to take this, put it in simple terms that the least of us can understand. And this was very, this is very attractive to me, especially as I as I began to to grow with and in the Dharma, the yeah, the sense of of engagement, engaging not only with others, with the world, with self. What's that quality? What's that quality? And and how can I practice to do it? You know, we'll say authentically. That's one way of putting it. But how can I? How can I? practice it, and being honest with myself about that practice. And what am I learning? What can I learn about that practice I'm having to be painfully honest about without judgment? Hmm. So I feel that for me, the way that, that Ty was able to teach was 
he himself, of course, experienced it knowing his life of being, you know, exiled from his home country, not able to return for 40 years. And all of it has happened, you know, in his life and in his uh, most um, parts of his life when he was feeling most bereft. And that's a time of my life I felt bereft. I had been in politics. I'd been in politics, yeah. And I was feeling spiritually bereft. All those wonderful things I was doing, I dropped by the wayside and dived into the deep end because for the greater good. I learned a lot and I'm grateful. But I also learned not to ever give up self-practice. For something else, you think the time might be better spent. So, yes, I'm very grateful. If our listeners are curious about how they can connect with this practice of beloved community in the here and now in their lives, what would you suggest? Mm. Beloved community. Wow. I would say um, it starts with embracing self, embracing self, uh, exploring that child within that part of us within and just accepting it unconditionally. Beloved community starts here and beloved community as is written on a scroll of a, of a statute of Ty and Dr. King is the most noble task. Mm. And so being noble, recognizing the nobility in us, which has nothing to do with being born, high-born, or wealth, or anything else. Nobility here, being able to embrace mobility in community, whatever that looks like for us. I'm so grateful for your sharing today, Sister Peace. It's just waves of beauty washing over me, just listening to you. Thank you so much. I want to give you some time to share anything more that you would like to bring forward for our listeners. Mm. Uh, well, I'll start with something that happens today. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Being nervous about this interview. <laughs> and what I had to, I finally sort of came to is, how do we greet something? Like this interview today, I could choose how I was going to greet it. Frantic, nervous, not knowing, you know, all those human things. Or just say being, being honest about that and, and knowing that what will be, will be, and that is okay. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us today and for the season ahead. I can't wait to hear all of the wonderful insights you'll bring to us all in your interviews as well, Sister Thank Peace. you so much. Thank you. For the opportunity to be with you. Thank you very much. This is Karma Yesha Children for Opening Dharma Access, your host for this episode with incoming host. 
Sister Peace, sharing their Dharma experience as a BIPOC teacher. We're so happy to have her join us for Season 2 of ODA. Look for new episodes on the first Tuesday of every month in the coming months. In between episodes, we also share a meditation, mindfulness practice, chant, or other form of practice from our guests with you. Come back to check that out and to keep on listening to our BIPOC teachers. Be sure to subscribe for notifications and rate and review the podcast to help us spread the word. Check the episode notes for resources and email us at suddenleap.a2z at gmail.com with any questions. Let's open Dharma Access to all beings. Mm-hmm.